Mighty Ape is Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. With everything from movies, music, games, toys, books, hobbies and more, Mighty Ape is your one-stop shop for the things that matter most. They constantly have hot deals and exclusive promos. And if you visit their website on the click-through banner on fakechef.net's homepage, then your purchase will help support Good Movie Monday. Mighty Ape, Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. You mean to wish me a good morning? What do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Please go away. Let me speak for the love of God. So it's becoming obvious that some of you actually do listen to our show as it premieres every Monday at 6 a.m. That's Eastern Aussie time. And holy shit, that, that's amazing. So good morning to you guys specifically. And then, of course, there's... The rest of you elsewhere in the world who listen to it on a Sunday afternoon, and in which case, good afternoon. And perhaps you've saved us for later in the week, and maybe you've stumbled upon us for the first time. I don't know. Whatever the case, you've picked a banger of an episode to start with. We have a special one today. You are listening to Good Movie Monday, the weekly movie show presented by FakeShamp.net, home of the nerdy cinematic ramblings. My name is Glenn Cochran, and it's a joy to be talking to you every week. Uh, but it'd be a pretty boring show without my reliable second mate, Ben Halwig. How do you do, sir? I'm feeling very uh, reliable. <laughs> you are. Uh, and are you ready for a huge show? I'm ready for a massive show. I'm super excited. Uh, yeah, like really excited. Like when you, I can't, I can't wait for when you uh, announce what's going to be happening and uh, I can't wait for it to happen. Well, the last time you accidentally missed our feature interview, so you better strap yourself in because we've got a big one. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere this time, man. I'm totally, uh, I'm psyched for this one. I'm ready. I've got my questions lined up. I've got, uh, it's all, I'm all ready to go. Okay. And in case you're wondering, the guy behind movies like Sleepwalkers, Psycho 4, Riding the Bullet and Critters 2 will be joining us shortly. I'm talking about writer-director Mick Garris, who is affectionately referred to as the master of horror amongst his peers. And he's responsible for forging a tight community amongst the horror scene in Hollywood. He's famous for bringing together absolute titans of the genre for his legendary Masters of Horror dinners, where the likes of Wes Craven and Toby Hooper and Joe Dante, John Landis, Quentin Tarantino, Eli Roth, amongst so many others, used to gather and wine and dine and share their battle stories. This guy has a huge story, and he's also the host of probably the most informative horror podcast on the planet, Postmortem with Mick Garris. So he's coming up real soon and we can't wait to talk to him. We're going to be discussing some of his work throughout the show. But before we get to that, uh, first and foremost, Monster Fest have announced their first wave lineup of films. And this year's festival slogan is Welcome to the Apocalypse. And I don't think there's ever been a more fitting theme for a festival. Ben, I know that you've had a big hand in this news, but because you're on co-hosting duties here today, we're going to leave those details for Jarrett in a few moments. But it is great news. I'm pretty excited, dude. Yeah, it's a pretty, look, it's a, I have to say it's, it is pretty exciting. It's a pretty awesome kind of first wave announcement. Uh, and it's just, it's great that, uh, knock on wood, we're still uh, going ahead and going ahead live. Absolutely. And I, I will leave it for Jarrett to reveal. I mean, he's revealed it already on social media, but we'll let him talk about it a bit more on the show. Uh, in the meantime, let's take a look at a couple of other things that have been happening since last week. Ben, I read that Ben Affleck is making a making of film about the production of Chinatown. What are your thoughts on that? Wow. 
That's, uh, I mean, look, I love Chinatown. I like Ben Affleck. I mean, it's a bit of an odd, like, are people ready for a, a movie about Roman Polanski not having <laughs> sex with underage girls? Like, is that what we're, you know, wow. like, is, or is it all going to be more focused on Robert Town and, and uh, Jack Nicholson and, and his issues with uh, Faye Dunaway and, I mean, John Houston. Like, who are they going to – I'm actually – I'm super excited to see who the cast of this movie is going to well, be. exactly like, right. I'm really excited just to see which particular direction they take because there's so many little di- diverts and, and subdivisions with the making of. The the stories are all over the place. And to capture it all in one film, it's either going to be very P.T. Anderson meets Tarantino or it's going to be like a Ben Affleck film and very historical and linear. I mean, do you think, like, with with the success of Mr. Robot, does Christian Slater have the juice to play Jack Nicholson in this movie? Because that would be awesome. <laughs> Jeez, would that ever? Oh, I haven't that thought would, about that. That would be amazing. I'd love to see it. And uh, I believe Tron 3 has found its director as well. And the film, which is affectionately being titled Jarrett Leto's Tron 3, has given the director's chair to Aussie filmmaker Garth Davis, who previously made Lion and Mary Magdalene. Tron 3. I'm excited. Oh, I mean, Lion, Tron. I mean, those two films go hand in hand. <laughs> like, like a, the choice is obvious. I mean, is this, another, is this another like Star Wars casting where you get it, like an indie director to go and work for a giant studio and they just run roughshod right over them and they end up quitting in, you know, in, in disgust and disgrace and then someone like Ron Howard comes in and, and finishes off for you? Maybe. I mean, this one's interesting because it's Jarrett Leto's Tron 3. So he's the driving force behind it. Uh, it's got no connection to the previous two, I believe. It's a brand new sort of story. Ah, so they're going to update the game? The Tron game is actually going to be updated? Same universe, just new story. I don't know. Oh, okay. Um, okay. I, I mean, I'm interested because I did like the sequel. I liked part two. I thought that was quite good. Uh, I guess watch this space. Jared Leto, though, you know, like this was the kind of shit that was going on when um, Blade Runner 2 came along. You know, it was all about Jared Leto. Look, Jared Leto, a, a, it's a funny... He's a funny guy. Like it's almost like every movie he's in, he has to keep proving himself Yeah. because the minute, like you watch something good, like Dallas buyers club. And the minute it finishes, you're like, I fucking hate that Jared Leto. Like, <laughs> like, no, he's great. He's great in it. And you like him in that movie, but it's like, you immediately forget that he was good in it. And you're like, you're thinking back to just, yeah. you know, he's, he's, I don't, he's never done anything wrong. Like it's not like he's ever come out and, and, you know, revealed himself to be a total prick or anything like that. It's just, I guess he, maybe he's just too good looking or or I don't know what it is, but... I think he has a real wanky sort of aura about him. Yeah, and which may which may be completely false. Yep. But, I mean, he looks like an emo pop star most of the time. Yeah, which he is. And, which he kind of is. And he just, you know, has that... Like, he's got that eye roll factor. And even... And it's like I said, like Panic Room and all that sort of stuff where he's, he's actually quite good mm. in them. Like he gives great performances and great characters and stuff. But the, the minute you've stopped watching him in that, you just revert back to, oh, I don't know about Jared Leto. <laughs> really well, then there's the news that Lionsgate are releasing Evil Dead 1 and 2 on a much-deserved 4K Ultra HD format on September 29th, uh, which is the same day that the Halloween uh, original is getting a 4K release, but normally I wouldn't report on this kind of thing. But given that fake Shemp is kind of tied into Evil Dead, I thought it was more of an appropriate thing for us to talk about. But um, it's always a shame that you know Army of Darkness gets left out. 
Yeah, like it really is. I mean, I mean, admittedly, that's much more of a kind of a slapstick comedy than uh, than the others. Much more, much truer to the fake Shemp <laughs> kind of uh, yeah uh, uh, thing. And it's the it's the it's the only one of those films that I actually got to see theatrically. Yeah, um, and I like I wagged school to go and see it. And it was awesome. But isn't it more? It's, it's isn't it more the um, the legalities, the distribution rights, and all that kind of stuff is the reason it always gets left out. Uh, I have no idea. Like probably that's that's definitely like something that Jarrett would be able to answer for you. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know who. It's all Dino De Laurentiis to me. I don't know. That's the reason that season one and two of Ash vs Evil Dead were not allowed to reference it. But by the time season three came around, they had permission. Right. No, no, see, I still haven't watched season three of uh, Ash vs Evil Dead either. I stopped. I dropped out after, funnily enough, after. After the end of season one, mate, persevere. It's actually awesome. It's really good. I mean, I like that Lucy Lawless is in it, and uh, mm-hmm. um, you know uh, what's her name uh, pops up for a couple of episodes. Um, well, Samara Weaving is in Samara it. Weaving. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, yeah which and yeah, that she has not. I have not seen a movie that I didn't like with her in it. Well, there's some news that I I wasn't even going to touch upon, but may as well now you brought her up. Is that the babysitter is getting a sequel? Oh, you know, I heard about this. Is it is it Mick G again, or is it um, <laughs> someone else? I hate that directing name. It. I hate that name so much. <laughs> Mick G. Yeah. I thought I remember when Charlie's Angels came out. I was like, this is this is awesome. Like I thought it was when it, when it, when I first saw it, it was as cool as uh, as uh, that guy in uh, in uh, I can't remember what the the movie's called, but he changed his name to McLovin. Oh yeah, what's super that, bad. What's that film? It's super bad. Yeah, super bad. <laughs> Uh, I was like, yeah, gee, what a great name. Like, and obviously he's, he's a music video director and all that sort of stuff, but yeah. I just thought it was, I thought it was stupid and hilarious at the same time. Yeah. But he, he held onto it all the way. He's, he's held onto it. Yeah. And you know, more power to him. commit, commit to the bit. <laughs> I guess the longer it goes on, the, the cooler it will become. But anyway, that will do because Guillermo will be coming up soon uh, to bring us up to speed on all the news uh, with his Screen Realm segment. Uh, but let's throw to a promo, and then on the other side of that, we'll dive into some of Mick Garris's lesser-known work. This Friday, Scarefest Television features CyberCon guest Catherine Corcoran of Terrifier. That's at scarefestradio.com or on Facebook and Twitter by following The Scarefest. The show starts at 9 p.m. Eastern, and don't be late. We're not sure if we'll have her for only half the show. So, yep, CyberCon is right around the corner. It's that one-day-only virtual convention taking place on September 29th, and it will feature celebrity guests, online traders, Q&A panels, virtual ghost tours, and more. I'm going to be there uh, throughout the day, so make sure you grab a ticket for 5 bucks and pop along for a while, see what it's all about. Uh, visit thusgarefest.com and uh, follow the links. Hey, this is Jared, and this week, instead of talking about home entertainment, I'm going to talk about Monster Fest. And that's because last Thursday night, we revealed our first wave of programming for 2020 Monster Fest, Welcome to the Apocalypse. This year, Monster Fest will be happening in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Perth and Adelaide from Thursday the 29th of October through to Sunday the 1st of November, in all five cities, simultaneous. Now, our first wave of programming is a diverse bunch of films, but would you expect anything else? Our opening night film is Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor. This is his sophomore feature and obviously his first feature since 2012's Antiviral. In that time, he's been doing a lot of short, 
uh, experimental films and music videos and you can tell like he's really just mastered his craft because Possessor is like nothing you've ever seen before. It is abstract, immersive and unflinchingly brutal. It is brilliant. I thoroughly recommend Possessor. You need to see this movie. And for the first time in MonsterFest history, we're actually going to host a world premiere of a film in five cities simultaneous. And we're doing it with Occupation Rainfall, which is the follow-up to Luke Sparks' 2018 film Occupation. Now, he's up the level on everything in this film, including cast. This film stars Ken Jeong from the Hangover trilogy and Community. It's got other casts, new casts like Dan Gillies from the originals, got returning casts like Dan Ewing from Beast No More and the original Occupation, obviously. Uh, so that one's going to be big. We're expecting big things. I haven't seen the finished film yet, but I have seen some scenes from this movie and it it's next level. It really is. Then Steve Kachansky, you might know him from Astron 6. He also directed The Void back in 2016, which was like a Lovecraftian love letter film. We played it at one of the Monster Fests, uh, one of the traveling sideshows. I think it may have been in Perth. Well, he's back with Psycho Gorman, which is like a light-hearted and ultra-violent slice of cosmic adventure. Um, it is just something else. It, it, yeah, like a, it's a cross between, say, uh, Peter Jackson's like Meet the Feebles or Bad Taste meets Mighty Morphin Power Rangers meets Explorers. It is just insane. Uh, then we've got Shakespeare's Shitstorm. Now, add a hashtag in front of that, and you've got the new film from Lloyd Kaufman and Troma. Now, you may remember they did a Shakespeare adaptation before, back in the mid-90s. 25 years ago, in fact, they did Tromeo and Juliet. Now, they've gone back to the Bard for the latest film, which is an adaptation of Shakespeare's The Tempest. And this is just insane. It flies in the face of cancel culture all the way, as to be expected, completely un-PC and absolutely entertaining. Um, Shakespeare shitstorm. Uh, again, like, honestly, I know I keep saying this, but like this year's program, we've got so many things that you just never thought you'd see, and definitely not in a cinema. Uh, then last, we've got Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall. That's right, the Arnold Schwarzenegger classic from 1990 is going back to the big screen for its 30th anniversary. This is an all-new 4K restoration of the film, which will be its Australian premiere also. I remember when I first saw this film at the drive-in with my parents, and I loved it and have seen it countless times since. In fact, I can't recall how many times I've seen it. Sorry, had to do it. Now, if you're keen on catching these five films and potentially the other nine, because I think it's looking about 14 films this year for the festival, I would recommend getting a VIP pass ASAP due to obviously current capacity restrictions, we've had to reduce the amount of VIP passes we've got for the festival. So the first allocation's only 20 and there's no guarantee that we'll be able to release any more as we move uh, closer to the festival. So if you are thinking about getting a festival pass, get on it now. Anyway, that's it for me for this week. Next week, I'll be back to do my regular PE class segment. But until then, stay physical. Man, Ben, that's you know that is like I said before, massive news on the Monster Fest front. Uh, no doubt we will be discussing that uh, at length in the coming weeks. Uh, I would have thought, you know, with the whole uh, apocalypse thing, this would have been the perfect year for Smoke 'em if you got him. Unfortunately, we've already done it. I know. Any <laughs> <laughs> time we did it already, but uh, yeah, it would have been great. I mean, look, it's it goes for forty eight minutes. I'm sure we could. Uh, can always slot it in. Yeah. Uh, as a, I mean, these days, it used to be that the rule for shorts was it had to be somewhere between five and, and ten minutes, but really you wanted them to be about five minutes. 
for programming purposes. And you're lucky now these days if you get a short that's under 15 minutes. Yeah. So, you know, and sometimes they come in at 20, 25. Like we actually have a stipulation in, in the um, – in the programming that they can't be over 20 minutes or, or, or something like that, but Smart. You, you still get them every now and then. And I figure like, well, you know, why not, why don't you just put in uh, smoke them if you got them? Just Look, if, if, if you have no idea what we're talking about, smoke them if you got them is a, as a classic sort of post-apocalyptic punk kind of uh, cult film that Ben championed for a long time. He got it released onto, onto DVD and um, it's a doozy. It's a, it's available now on, uh, from uh, monsterpictures.com.au. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Just, just put that out there. Just put that out there. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, but now, Ben, Mick will be joining us in a few minutes. And because our show is not exclusively horror-related, I thought it might be a good idea to give some people a little bit of a rundown on who this guy is. So before we sort of talk about some of his films, let's just go through some of his history. He began as an editor and a journalist for the Z Channel back in the 70s, and his filmmaking career began with him directing a bunch of behind-the-scenes documentary shorts for movies like The Goonies, The Thing... Uh, Videodrome, The Howling. Um, here's a few tidbits of trivia for some of you listening. Uh, one of his most celebrated works is Hocus Pocus. Now, that's the annual Halloween kids film that never runs out of steam. It plays every single year. Do you love that one? Funnily enough, I uh, only watched it for the first time, uh, I think it was, is it 2000, 2018, Jarrett and I, uh, went to Fantastic Fest yes. uh, in Austin. And one night I kind of convinced him to like, let's not bother going to see one of these, one of these Fantastic Fest movies. I've bought a copy of Hocus Pocus. <laughs> let's just uh, stay in the Airbnb and, uh, and watch it. <laughs> and that was the first time I'd, I'd ever seen it. And uh, I thought it was great. I, like, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. That must have been a special night. <laughs> <It was laughs> I don't. I think we actually because we went with Michael Helms. I think we convinced Michael to stick around as well. Yeah, right. Um, and the three of us, uh, three three men, uh, all uh, in their middle years, watching Kathy Najimy and Bette Midler and Sarah <laughs> Jessica Parker. And like at that time, Sarah Jessica Parker is the young one. Yep. And uh, you know, you know what? I bet Mick would be thrilled to hear that. Yeah, like you know, we thoroughly enjoyed it. We did not regret missing whatever it is. I don't even remember what we missed. That's how memorable it was. It don't matter. Uh, it don't matter. Uh, we watched Hocus Pocus instead. Well, Mick Garris also wrote the original story to Batteries Not Included. Now, that really, you know, that chuffs me because he didn't write the screenplay, but he was the one that came up with the concept and the story. And it was supposed to be an episode of Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories. Um, for which Mick had directed several episodes, but um, ended up, you know, for better or worse, falling into the hands of others and becoming what it was. But apparently, his version was much darker. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it, I, look, I, yeah, look, I guess that it is. It's kind of pretty dark anyway. But you can see how it could have got a lot, like all the street hood stuff and the 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 um, the building magnate kind yeah. of stuff could have got a lot darker. And John, you know, John Pankow, you know, turns up. In it and uh, from Mad About You and uh, Monkey Shines <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, and stuff and yeah he could his character could have been given a bit more to do he doesn't get much to do but like I watched this movie for the first time I think at, you know um, at holiday was it they call it holiday not holiday camp but um, 
you know, when your parents, when your school's on holiday and your parents still work, yes. so you go to like, I went to the Oakley Mechanics Institute for the holiday, the Oakley Council <laughs> holiday program. Well, and uh, that's where like I saw. An, it's like an American summer camp. Yeah, but it's like you still go home at the end of the day kind of thing oh, and your parents right. just drop you off there in the morning. Yep. Um, it's like, you know, babysitting basically. But uh, that's that's where I saw Turner and Hooch for the first time. It's where I saw Land Before Time for the first time. And it's where I saw Batteries Not Included for the first time. I think I saw Mac and Me for the yeah, first yeah. time at one of those things. Um, and I, we watched it, I think, I think we were still, even then, I think we watched it on video. Um, and then I watched it again uh, in prep for the uh, for the interview, <laughs> yeah. I watched it again on VHS, oh. um, and I like, I was like, this movie's so good. I, and I I didn't I completely forgot that um, that Dennis Putsakaris uh, is in it, mm-hmm. and this guy's in he's in some of my all time favorite films, including like he's the the shrink in uh, Dream Team. Yeah, and I'm like, it's that guy. Oh, dream Team, how good's that? But yeah, I know Mick doesn't particularly like taking a lot of credit for batteries not included, but I do like giving it to him because, you know, he is instrumental in its origins. Speaking of origins, he also wrote one of the early drafts for Fly 2, um, which would right. later be worked on by Frank Darabont and the Wheat Brothers. And if you don't know who the Wheat Brothers are, look them up as well. Um, but Fly 2, like, I, I think that is a really solid sequel. I uh, I'm fam- I was famously outed on I outed myself on Facebook as having never seen The Fly, and uh, while I've I've rectified that, I have not seen The Fly too. I'm afraid. Oh, that's okay. Well, there's something to look Just forward don't, to. Don't mention it to to uh, don't mention it to Mick. Okay. Well, let's hope he doesn't listen back either. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Um, this is being recorded. Look, he also he also appeared as a zombie in Michael Jackson's Thriller. He would uh, later go on to co-wrote Michael Jackson's Ghost with um, Stephen King, which that began as a short film tie-in with the Adams Family Values. Is that what it's supposed to be? Because I, like I had no idea, and I like I, I watched it on on YouTube. Yeah, and I was like, hang on, a and that, like it was a two two forty p video, so it wasn't exactly you know, high yep. definition. But I'm watching it going, is that? Is that Michael Jackson in whiteface? Yes. And for Michael Jackson to need to do whiteface is pretty amazing because <laughs> it's during his like you know, and it, it's clear like he 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 really kind of you know discovered his look and he's like I'm gonna stick with that. He's in the final stage, final stage of his metamorphosis, let's say. Yeah, and he's like I'm just black pants and white singlet <laughs> and a white shirt. That's I'm gonna wear that in everything for the rest of my life, uh, except when he's in in whiteface and he's in a suit. Yep. But he still got his voice. Well, it was actually filmed and shot with the cast of Adam's Family Values, but then contract disputes with Paramount kind of got in the way and saw it morph into the ghosts that ended up being produced, which I think is actually really wonderful. Um, Garris ended up leaving the project to go and make The Shining uh, 1998 tally movie with Stephen King, and then Stan Winston took over the directing duties. But um, once again, like, you know, Garris and King right from the beginning were the ones that shepherded that. Well, I mean, look, I think I think it was a smart decision um, from MJ to remove himself from the Adams family values kind of thing because then he would have been going head to head with MC Hammer for the Adams <laughs> too legit for the first Adams family film. And sorry, ghosts ain't no too legit. <laughs> I forgot all about the Hammer thing. I've got I've got the I've got the vinyl single. Like back when they did, when they did just add, they had one song and two remixes 
on a on a on a record for uh, too legit. And that, sir, is why you're on this show. <laughs> anyway, needless to say, Garris has personal ties to just about every horror movie ever made, and we'll be talking to him in just a moment after we throw to Guillermo. And uh, look, apologies uh, for Guillermo's segment. The audio on this week's Screen Realm segment is a little bit off. Guillermo's in the throes of moving house and hasn't quite got his office set up yet, so we'll forgive him this time. Hey, but, um, hey mate, sorry. While... while, while Guillermo's segment is going on. Do you mind if I just quickly go and get changed? Because I don't, I've just realized that I'm wearing the same clothes I've been wearing all week because we're in lockdown and I don't want Mick to think I'm a slob. So I'm just going to (laughs) go and get changed. So just don't, don't start the interview without me. All right. Well, you've got. I'll be five minutes. You've got like like a segment and a song's worth of time and you could have probably said this off mic. Sorry. Sorry. What's happening, everybody? It's Guillermo here again from ScreenRealm.com. Happy to be back on Good Movie Monday. Apologies for the audio. I've had a few technical difficulties while moving house. Trying to set up in this new office. It's not going that well. Okay, let's quickly talk a little bit about what we've covered on the side in the past week. Keanu Reeves' film 47 Brunin has a sequel in the works. It's a little surprising to be getting word on a sequel to that film, considering it was a critically panned box office flop. With delays and a budget that shot up past 170 million, that film drew around 151 million worldwide and landed with a Rotten Tomatoes score of 16%. Yeah, it didn't go well, although it's possible the home entertainment market has been much kinder to it over time. Nevertheless, Universal Pictures' home entertainment production arm, Universal 1440 Entertainment, is keen to provide another chapter. The sequel is to be directed by longtime actor and fight choreographer Ron Yuan, who has a role in Disney's upcoming live-action Mulan movie. Now this is where it gets interesting. It's a jarringly different-sounding sequel. The first action fantasy was set in the late medieval age. The sequel will be set in the future and include both horror and cyberpunk elements. Some reports also say that Netflix will be the film's distributor. There's a remake of the 1987 comedy Three Men and a Baby on the Way and Zac Efron is set to star. Disney Plus is to be the home of the new film, which you could actually say is a remake of a remake. The 87 film script was based on a 1985 French film called Three Men and a Cradle. The third Tron film is finally moving ahead and with an Australian filmmaker at the helm. Set to direct Disney's long gestating third film in the franchise is Garth Davis, known for the emotional film Lion and the Joaquin Phoenix as Jesus film Mary Magdalene. Jared Leto is set to star in this third Tron film and he's been attached since 2017. The new Tron movie will apparently not be a direct sequel to the previous films Tron and Tron Legacy and it will instead chart its own path as a new installment in the franchise. The past week also saw Glenn deliver a review for Made in Italy, a Liam Neeson starring film that sees the transformed action star put down the gun and put in a great performance in this film that co-stars his real-life son. What gives the film a little more emotional weight is that it deals with Neeson's character having lost his wife and his son having lost his mother, which is sadly what happened to Neeson and his son when Natasha Richardson tragically lost her life 11 years ago. Despite some nice elements, Glenn wasn't too impressed with the film overall. He wrote, Seasoned cinephiles might balk at the convention and lament the lack of depth, However, casual moviegoers with a love of melodrama ought to get a lot more out of it. 3 out of 5 stars. That about does it for me guys. I'll quickly mention that we have two awesome giveaways up on the website right now. We are giving Yellowstone Season 1 and 2 Blu-ray packages away. Thanks to Viavision Entertainment and to celebrate Yellowstone's Blu-ray release on August 12th. And thanks to Eagle Entertainment Australia, we're giving away DVD copies of the acclaimed crime thriller The Standoff at Sparrow Creek. That's it for me guys. Be sure to jump on screen room for all the latest movie news, TV news, trailers, all that jazz. I'm out.
I'm not sure that I know a more chilling piece of music, nor can I think of a more appropriate one, and that was Bodicia by Enya from the soundtrack to Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. And the reason why that's a fitting segue is because the director of Sleepwalkers, the master of horror himself, Mick Garris, is crashing this episode and he's right here, right now. G'day Mick, it's awesome to have you with us. Uh, it's great to be here to break into your little studio and uh, just find myself, make myself at home. <laughs> well, you are most welcome. How are these uh, restricted times treating a creative mind like yourself? Well, the good news is it hasn't changed much uh, other than production, which you wait a long time between anyway. But I'm, I'm writing. I've got a new book out. I've, you know, um, yeah, this is my little domicile here next door to my house is my podcasting studio, which like you, we're doing remotely now. Yes. And so life is is going on. It's a little lonelier and a little distant with a screen between us like it is between you and me. Yes. But, uh, but considering it's Armageddon, we're doing pretty well. <laughs> Correct. Well, from one podcaster to another, I would actually like to start talking about some of your interview work. I've been looking back at a lot of your interviews and oh and your own interviewing. You, you certainly set a very high bar. Oh. Um, of, of course, you know, your podcast post-mortem is a benchmark for any self-respecting podcast host. <laughs> How long has that been running for now? We're in our fourth season now. We're down for a few weeks. We had the controversy with uh, Fangoria, which was our home for this year. Um and, you know, we were very happy there, but all of the Fangoria podcasts had to face up to some not very good news about the, the corporate leadership of the company. So all of us left at once, and now we are just on the verge of making a deal with a new home. So it's been even more lonely without being on the air for a while, but we've recorded a couple of them in advance, and uh, they're pretty great gifts. Oh, excellent, because I was going to say that the show has been something of a frequent flyer. It's hopscotched from one home to another over over a couple of years. And I, I was going to say without, you know, the explanation, but you gave it to me willingly. So that's that's good. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's out there. So is there, is there a date set on when we can see it return? Um, I think it's going to be a matter of weeks rather than months. So I'm hopeful that before the end of September, we will be blasting you some more post-mortem uh, you know, and uh, I miss it as much as anybody does, probably more than anybody does. I, I know that feeling. It's it's not good to be away from the mic for too long. Yeah, you know, in quarantine, it's, uh, you know, I can be in front of the mic, but I'm not able to really speak one-on-one -on -one as we would in the same room. Yeah. And when you interview people, is it easier for you to interview somebody that you um, you already know and have a relationship with? Or is it easier with a, a personality you've never met before? It's interesting because it can work both ways. You know, sometimes if I know them really well and we're really good friends, it can inhibit them a little bit in that it's like, this is my friend. I don't know about it. But other times people forget it's an interview and it becomes a conversation. But that has happened with people I've never met before as well, where we try and give them a place where we know nobody's going to give them any shit. We are admirers. We are friends. We are passionate about the genre and their work or they wouldn't be here. Um, so it becomes more of a conversation than an interview. And it's surprising how many times that has happened with somebody I don't know. And there have been a couple of people who I've known for so long. It's like, 
are we interviewing? What are we doing? <laughs> it can be a little bit awkward because it feels more business-like than it would uh, on other circumstances. But we try and knock the wall down as much as possible and make people forget there's a big fat microphone in front of them. Yes. Well, obviously your stature within the industry would make you know some of these big guests quite easy to get. I was wondering how it works. Do you chase the guests or do you have a producer that is on the lookout for them? I do have a producing partner, Joe Russo, but I get most of the guests myself, um, either because I know them or because I'm a real admirer. Uh, but the uncomfortable part is when press agents, PR people come to me with somebody who's got their movie opening this week. Yep. And our interview is like an hour long conversation about their careers and their influences and things like that. And when it's not set for a time, we hope them to be timeless. You can go to Apple Podcasts and there's a hundred interviews or shows that you can choose from and they're always up there. So um, we normally have to go, you know, unless it's something I'm really personally excited about, um, like Host is a new movie out on, on Netflix that's terrific. Well, we're off the air for a few weeks. We've got three shows recorded and another one we're doing in a week or two. So it would be months before that conversation could could get to the audience. So, um, but usually it's people I know will help me get somebody that we don't know and he can go through the proper channels. Gotcha. Because I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Who does? <laughs> exactly. I was actually, I was a fan particularly of your early series you did them on video is that something you would be keen to do again i would do it again i've talked to a couple of places uh, about doing that but it's much harder to get set up i don't really want to do it as a youtube show at least with FearNet, we were able to do it on television ott television and uh you know it was also available online that's fine but i don't want to be just another youtube interviewer yeah, I get it. Now, going right back, before even directing films, you did all manner of things, including hosting an interview show called Fantasy Film Festival, which I guess yeah. was a, that was a precursor to Postmortem. How did you land that gig? Well, it was the first pay TV channel in LA, even before HBO and Showtime. So I was there, it was 1979, and I had started writing for the Z Channel magazine. Uh, Z Channel was... The, the channel we were on. They showed two movies a week and they alternated them like uh, at a movie theater. And Charles Champlin was there, was the chief um, movie critic at the Los Angeles Times and he interviewed all the big guys. And then I pitched them the Fantasy Film Festival series where we would do sci-fi fantasy and horror films and I would promise them a guest every week to do 15 or 20 minutes before the movie aired. So I was able to get people because people, the Z channel went to the areas in Los Angeles that were most inhabited by people in the industry. I had Steven Spielberg and William Friedkin and John Landis and Toby Hooper and John Carpenter way back in 1979, 1980. So that was how that came about. I went to the production, the, the uh, programming chief at Z channel and said, look, what about we talk to the people who make these movies and you know, you show me what movies I can choose from and I'll get you a guest and we'll do it. And I was a terrified young fellow who'd never <laughs> been on TV before uh, interviewing some of the, well, Steven Spielberg, for example. 
I think what you said moments ago holds true because those earlier interviews really hold up. They're timeless. Well, that's kind of the point. You know, talk about the current movie, sure, or, or what's coming, that sort of thing. But you want to know what makes people tick and who they are and what their influences were and how they grew up and what kind of student they were in school, if at all, you know, or, you know, were you like Martin Scorsese and Joe Dante and had serious illness that kept you home and your life was movies. You know, it's, it's just really interesting to have that kind of conversation and not all be about the business and all be about selling the current movie that's out there and, and the same sound bites on Entertainment Tonight or CNN or, you know, it, it just, they learn to say this as somebody who's been interviewed a lot like this now, um, you tend to get a lot of the same questions. And so the point is like you're doing, we're talking about something other than what I normally get asked about. If I do another interview about the stand during coronavirus, I'll blow my brains out. <laughs> I'm deliberately avoiding those sort of questions. I because uh, yeah. I watch so many interviews and with lots of people, and the same stuff just gets sort of recycled, and I find that a bit tedious. So, um, yeah. but going back to those old interviews, I think my favorite has to be the Fred Willard one. He was like, <laughs> you, you weren't sure whether he was a prickly pear or he was a he was a silent genius. I think the latter. Yeah, well, at the very end, he was definitely fucking with me, and I was too naive and new at it to yeah. understand. And I just, he'd keep going on with an answer that would provoke another thought, and I said, I'm going along with it. And I said, you know, I think he knows, he thinks that we have a hard out, but I can keep going. We're on pay TV. So. Yeah. But I was the fool, not him. That's, it's, it's entertaining, to say the least. Oh, he's so much fun. Chad says I should open up this episode with welcome to the fun size edition of Bonehead. Welcome to this fun size edition of Bonehead. Welcome weekly. to a fun size edition of this Bonehead. Oh, this, this fun size, not A, it's just not some generic. Welcome to Bonehead fun size this edition. We each wanted to pick our favorite Mick Garris project, whether that be something he produced, wrote, directed, or all the above. I'll go first. I had a really hard time because I actually wanted to do two versions of this where we did the non-King adaptions and the King adaptions. And my issue is, is one of my favorite movies of his is a King adaption, but it's the one that gets absolutely no credit. And to me, it's his most personal film because it actually elevates the work. We all know we've done so many episodes of Stephen King. Stephen King is my favorite living author and it is riding the bullet and riding the bullet is about a kid who finds out his mother is dying and he needs to get back to her and he hitchhikes his way back but riding the bullet is mick garris's most personal film probably uh, also david arquette's second best role my my second really quick can i say is psycho four is way better than any movie called psycho four has any right to be so uh so for my pick um, you know, I was going to pick what is considered the best Easter movie of all time. I've said it numerous times. I just assumed that's what you're going to do. No, I am instead going to go for one that he just wrote uh, because I, I feel like it's forgotten. The battery's not included. Uh, Mick wrote it. Uh, it was actually originally intended to be an amazing episode of Amazing Stories, but they, they thought it was too good of a story, so they made it into a feature film. Um, the story was too amazing to be part it was of amazing too story. fantastic to be an amazing story. 
No, but right. uh, the, uh, just, you know, weird. again, brief synopsis. The movie tells the story of alien robots that are tiny, tiny flying saucers, and they, they help the residents of an apartment building that is slowly falling apart and facing destruction. Uh, this is one of those feel-good movies that uh, has kind of disappeared in passing years. People just don't talk about it. It's uh, one of my wife's favorite movies. And it was one of my favorites as a kid as well. And I watched it a few years ago, and it still holds up in my opinion. Um, it's just, it's really feel-good from the beginning to end. And I would love to see it gather the cult following that it deserves. So uh, batteries not included is my pick. All right, James. You know, I, I had to go with one that he wrote as well. Cause I, I admire, I think uh, Mick being multi-talented. I mean, he, he has directed, he did all that stuff. I literally would beat, beat to death by my wife. If I didn't mention Hocus Focus. However oh, you feel no, about He it. never gets that. Well, no, no, but <laughs> I, I have a follow-up. But Hocus Pocus... Tell me more about Stephen King, Mick. Oh, my God. Uh, Mick, if you haven't seen any of these, uh, Joe did five episodes. Now, he claims we were part of them, but I don't remember a single thing about them. But Hocus Pocus, A, has so many great things going for it. Uh, I got to mention Doug Jones because I'm a huge Doug Jones fan. The other thing about it is, speaking of cult following, it's really funny to me because I got an email from Disney today, the Disney store. It was all, oh, buy stuff for Halloween. And I think it's really funny that probably 10 years ago, Hocus Pocus had a cult following, but there wasn't lots of merchandise. And they released it in the summer. They didn't even release it at Halloween. It was such just a drop. And if you're ever near Hattiesburg, Mississippi, one of the coolest things that goes on there, the, the historic Sanger Theater, they annually do a showing of Hocus Pocus. And it sells out, and you get to see it with a crowd. I took my wife because my wife does love that film. But I love it now that I have kids because it is a Halloween movie. It does very much have a Halloween movie feel that I can watch with my kids. I, I was going to say, I wanted to honorably mention one other thing. Mick Garris wrote Michael Jackson's Ghost. And everybody knows Thriller. Not a lot of people know Ghost. You should check out. And if you can find the full 39-minute film, because yep. Michael Jackson, however you feel about him, he made music videos. They were movies. They were, And Mick Garris was involved in Ghost. So if you have never seen it, if you so with Stan Winston, there's a long story here that Mick could tell us about someday. And if you decide to come on the show, Mick, you could talk about that, or we can talk about your time and amazing stories, or maybe Avco Embassy, or we could talk about horse feathers. Whatever you'd like to talk about, Mick. This has been Bonehead Weekly Fun Size. Mick Garris, you are invited on Bonehead Weekly anytime you'd like to come even though you've already told me no once a couple of years ago. Thank you so much. And thank you for your years of work, Mick. Now, on this show, we're not um, exclusively horror. Our previous podcast used to be. So there might be some listeners who aren't familiar with the work you've done uh, with the Stephen King, collabora- uh, Stephen King collaborations. Uh, you made Sleepwalkers. You've also done The Stand, Right in the Bullet, Bag of Bones, Desperation, Quicksilver Highway, and the 1998 adaptation of The Shining. As far as I am concerned, I think you are amongst four filmmakers who consistently nail the atmosphere of King's work. What do you think defines a Garris King collaboration? Well, I think there's a humanity to it. And, and there's being in touch with one's childhood, writing about writers. Uh, um, and I think something that's grounded in the real world. Now, I know that's silly to say that about something like Sleepwalkers. But the point is to bring as much truth to it as possible and to make it feel personal. And with The Stand and The Shining and, and, and Bag of Bones, they have an emotional content that is often missing in horror, particularly from the 80s and the 90s. Um, more so now, like, I don't know if you've seen The Outsider on HBO. It's brilliant. 
uh, and it's treated like the most adult drama there is. It doesn't feel a trace like a horror movie because it's just taking itself seriously and it's grounded in a very real world. And it takes you a couple episodes before, whoa, mm. there's something supernatural at work here. But that is the beauty of King's work. And I think it's one of the reasons we get along so well as we, we see the world similarly in, in that regard and through the eyes of real people and not caricature. A lot of people think that horror movies are not made the same way as dramas. And as far as I'm concerned, it's all Shakespeare. Yeah, and, absolutely. Couldn't put it better myself. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure you could have. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, the, the horror happens to people, you know, it's sort of, it's not forced. Yeah, it's got to be good drama first before it can be effective horror. If you can't take the drama seriously, then it's just a roller coaster ride that you forget about as soon as you step off of it. You want it to be experiential and you want it to hurt, you know? Yes, uh, if I might say so, I think uh, The Sleepwalkers and Bag of Bones are your best adaptations. They are uh, amazing. Thank you. I love Bag of Bones. Not many people know Bag of Bones, although it was very successful on cable here. It was not like on broadcast television where, you know, The Stand was the biggest miniseries in history. Bag of Bones was a big hit for A&E, but not that many people saw it. Well, that's a shame. <laughs> ah, thank you. Thank you. So a, ran a random question. I'm wondering what Stephen King movie would you love to have made and then perhaps what story would you love to adapt? I don't know. We're running out of the ones to adapt because <laughs> they've all been done so often and so well. But the one I most wished I had done was Gerald's Game. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a real challenge. How do you make that cinematic? I think Flanagan did a great job of it. Um, the adaptation was, was terrific. Um, but, you know, how do you take a woman handcuffed to a bed, spread eagle naked under her dead fat lawyer husband for an hour and a half. How do you make that into a movie? And that challenge was one that could, could obviously Flanagan managed to, to meet that challenge and did a great job of it. But we talked about it, King and I talked about it for a while. And at first he wanted to direct it and I would produce it. And that would have been great, but I would love to have made that movie. As far as the ones I would like to still, I can't think of anything off the top of my head because they're all being done. Yeah, I think there's I something like 11 plus in production right now. It's amazing. It's, it's really incredible and it's great. I love it, but I don't want to redo another one. Doing The Shining was great because it was King's version. He wrote the script himself. Mm -hmm. He never liked the Kubrick film. And this was a very personal one to him. And getting that opportunity was fantastic. But I don't know that I'd want to go in and, and do a, a reboot of Pet Cemetery or any sure. of the others that have been done. Yeah. You know, you don't want to remake Stand By Me. It's perfect <laughs> the way it is. You know? Absolutely. Um, people that listen to this show know that children's films and horror films are the two genres that I respect the most. Uh, I'm a huge fan of those gateway horror films for kids. Um, and you, <laughs> I know you've, one. <laughs> you've worked quite a bit in the family horror genre. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on horror being an integral sort of psychological development tool for young minds. I think it's really important. You know, I don't want to get too serious about it, but um, 
it was therapy for me. You know, my childhood was very splintered. My parents broke up at an early age. They fought a lot. And even though I had, uh, when I was really young, I had two brothers and a sister, and then my mother remarried and had three more kids. You know, we weren't really brought up close. We were all kind of, especially during the deterioration of my parents' marriage, we were all kind of on our own. And I found a lot of solace in movies about monsters and about the outsiders and the others. And, and you know, it, it made me a more creative person. It made me want to write stories. And then later when I was 12 years old and got my first eight millimeter film camera, made me want to make movies. And all of those things made me into whoever I am today, for better or for worse, you know, I think an interest in the dark arts is is a way of confronting your fears safely and coming out hopefully coming out well on the other end of the tunnel yes i couldn't agree more i think it really helps build resilience and a lot of things like children's literature is steeped in horror from the brothers Grimm right up to roald dahl and even now jk rowling you know it's absolutely i was a huge roald dahl fan you know uh, reading kiss kiss and someone like you those were books that just captivated me. I didn't know anything like that existed. And, you know, Ray Bradbury was my first love. And there's a gateway author for anybody because they're not for children, but he writes about childhood beautifully and poetically and creatively in a way that maybe that that world of, of his youth, maybe it wasn't really like that, just like Norman Rockwell painted an ideal of America that maybe never existed but it felt real and it yes. felt honest. I actually watched Something Wicked This Way Comes last night. I can't believe you brought him up. That's amazing. <laughs> I was on the set of that film. Uh, when it, it, made. The, I mean, I know it was a troubled production, but I feel like that's almost like Stephen King for kids. It's, you know, it's got a real Stephen King-esque kind of feel to it. Really does. Well, there's no question that King was greatly influenced by Bradbury and by Richard Matheson, whom I've been lucky enough to work with as well so. yeah i think storm of the century is the one that keeps coming to my mind whenever i watch something wicked this way it comes yeah yeah which <laughs> is one of the mini series i did not make <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's uh, craig baxley i think yeah craig baxley did and one more thing on the issue of kids horror movies do you think in today's world that intelligent pg horror films are more important than ever or are we perhaps at the wrong moment in history for that genre to work its magic well, I think they're trying to make movies for a rating rather than trying to rate a movie after it's finished. Um, you know, I'm so proud to have been a part of the creation of Hocus Pocus, you know, which is a real gateway drug for a lot of young people who that may be their first sort of horror movie. It's got witches and supernatural spells and scary and a zombie who loses his head and mm -hmm. has to put it back on. Um, I think those are things that really are important and are more mainstreamed than they've ever been before. You know, we know that kids are drawn to first, maybe it's dinosaurs, but then it turns into monsters of the imagination. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really great for kids. And it's too bad that they get the imagination kicked out of them through the regimentation of, of their education and particularly in the political situation situation we're in in the U.S. right now. Uh, there's never been a greater pre premium on idiocy. And I, I find it peculiar where, you know, schools ban certain literature when 
to, as far as I'm concerned, they should just be reading. It doesn't matter what they read. Absolutely. That's what my mother said when I was reading comic books all the time. Uh, I was reading other books too, like I said, the Ray Bradbury paperbacks and things. But people would say, don't, why are you letting your kid read these comic books? And she said, he's reading. And I wanted to draw those comic books. The first thing I did before I wrote was draw. And my father was a trained professional artist who never was able to make his living doing. But, you know, it was something that was in the blood. I'm very sanguinary. (laughs) Well, I'd like to sort of move forward to your newer work and Nightmare Cinema was your most recent theatrical release. You appear to feel very comfortable in the anthology environment. Is this a film that you would think about returning to for a follow-up? We are in talks about that, but you know, um, the whole coronavirus, like with everybody else's projects, it, it kicked that into idle. So we, uh, we're right now, we're on hold, but we talked about it. We've talked to some directors about it and the idea of doing one that's mostly female directors and, you know, really the whole purpose of the first one was to do an even more international version of what we did with Masters of Horror, mm-hmm. but as a feature film. And I do love anthology. You know, it's all separate stories that don't have to continue week to week to week to week. Masters of Horror, you know, we encouraged every filmmaker to make it their way, not our way. Mm. And we did the same thing with Nightmare Cinema. The whole point is to let talented, creative people go. And within the budget and schedule we can give them, let them do their worst and they'll do their best. Absolutely. And I think that so like Masters of Horror has been a pinnacle of horror television as far as I'm concerned. Very edgy. Thank you. We we did our best. <laughs> yeah. you, you certainly did. Like for, for its, you know, short lived, you know, run, it was just wonderful and I still revisit it all the time. Oh, thank you. And it also it sort of saw the return of some real masters that hadn't been around for a long time and that was exciting. To be able to say to Toby Hooper, you know, what do you want to make? And let's do this. And, and to John Carpenter and to, and to um, you know, so many really wonderful people, you know, um, Peter Medak doing his first horror in many, many years. Mm. And, you know, the guy who made the change came and made an episode of Masters of Horror. And we, we just... We had a few young Turks in there, but a lot of really seasoned people who who knew what the hell they were doing. And it was thrilling to have that and get stories from Clive Barker and Richard mm. Matheson, Richard Christian Matheson, and, you know, both Mathesons, and just really had a great time with it. Oh, legendary stuff. And, um, and we're kind of running out of time, but I want to wrap things up with, um, there's one thing that I always sort of end my interviews with international filmmakers, and it's my curiosity of finding out how Aussie movies sort of translate overseas and how they resonate around the world. I'm wondering what a few of your favourite Aussie films are and perhaps a couple of your favourite Aussie filmmakers. Well, uh, you caught me unprepared. But, um, (laughs) uh, you know, I just saw Long Weekend, uh, the original, for the first time, and that was pretty potent. I thought the, the remake was good as well. I really love Thirst. It's one of my favorites to the point where I was going to remake it, mm. um, working with Tony Ganane, and you know it, that would have been great. 
Um, turkey shoots, great. I mean, there's been a bunch of recent ones I've seen too, but I just can't think of them right now. Name some recent ones and I'll... I'll... Oh, the most recent one is Relic, which is... Um... Relic is fantastic. In fact, I was trying to think of the name of that one earlier today when I was thinking of things that have impressed me recently. Relic is great. Um, you know, there, there's just really, I, I really like the remake of Patrick. I thought that was really good. Mark Hartley's film was really bonkers and, and wonderful. Um, and just, there's a great tradition. I would say wake in fright, except I hate the slaughter of animals. So that really, <laughs> rue murder does not go down well. <laughs> it's a challenging film, that one. It's, um, As as a vegan, particularly. Yes. Yeah. I, um, I, I host a segment on Scarefest Television, which is a Kentucky-based convention, and all of these films you're mentioning now I've covered on there, they're all absolute favorite, near and dear to my heart movies. So I'm glad they're well, that, Thirst is one that not that many people know of, and I saw it at a screening when it was new, and I fell in love with it. It, it is so, you know, it's, I think it's what antiviral could have been but didn't yes. quite make this, you know? And it was so far ahead of its time in dealing with celebrity and, and, and it, it, people's devotion to their gurus. What we were going to do in the remake was set it in Beverly Hills. And, you know, these are all these acolytes who will do anything to give their blood to their favorite movie stars and celebrities. Oh, yes, that would have been amazing if that had happened. Yeah. I'll have to talk to Tony again. I see him all the time at events and screenings and yeah, no, he's still around making movies. It's great. Yeah. Well, Mick, it's been bloody great having you on the show. I interviewed you ages ago in basic Q and a written formats all seven years ago. I can't believe it's been that long. Well, I know we've been uh, Facebook friends for that long. So <laughs> yeah, I've been itching to get you on the show properly ever since. So hopefully one of these days we can get you down here for monster fest or something that would be exciting. I keep waiting for the invitation, oh. but now who knows when that international travel is ever going to be possible. Again. Oh, that's it. Who knows? But thank you for taking the time out. It's you're a true gentleman of the genre. Ah, oh, likewise, Glenn, thank you for having me. Hey guys, it's Adam here from Adam's Just Seen with another Good Movie Monday recommendation. My nickname is Adam Five Star Ross, so I'm going to give you a five-star movie to check out. My movie recommendation this week is The Silence of the Lambs, which has just dropped on stand. Now, if you're one of three people on the planet that hasn't seen this film, well, hell, you're in for a treat. One of those people was my housemate, so I made him revisit it. Every time I come back to this movie, I see something new, and that's because director Jonathan Demme here has created one of the best thrillers of all time. The reason why it's so enduring, the reason why it's so good is because this movie goes headfirst into a confrontation with evil and not the supernatural evil, the evil that actually exists in our world. And it's very fascinating to come back full circle and check this movie out because at the moment we have a true crime fascination. We have shows like Mindhunter, we have documentaries like I'll Be Gone in the Dark and they all owe a gigantic debt to this movie. As just a thriller, this movie is rock and roll. And the fact that it actually has this mentor-mentoree dynamic between a cannibal and, a, and a, an upstart young agent who are trying to figure out who our antagonist is, which isn't introduced until you know a fair length into the film. And that then you, Demi can braid these things in together and make them just work so well is, you know, it's an achievement. And it's, and it's the reason why everyone is trying to capture that lightning in the bottle that 
Silent Lambs had. I mean, and that's why we've had, you know, a couple of sequels, which are good. I don't think that they're, you know, except for Hannibal Rising is atrocious. And I'll let Glenn review that one because I know he likes the world's worst sequels. But look, everyone here is so on their A game that they were rewarded with an Oscar. This is one of the only films to win every big five in the Oscars, you know, best director, best film best screenplay, best actor, best actress, and all deserving. So look, if you haven't seen this, just turn this off now and go and check out one of the best films ever made. And if you have seen it, go back, because there is, there are layers here and there's depth, and there's just so many interesting flourishes that Demi puts into this film that make it incredibly easy to rewatch. So yep, Adam Five Star Ross is giving five stars to the Sons and Lambs. Go and revisit it. All right, I've been looking really forward to this segment. Uh, it's possibly one of my favourite genres. Uh, kids horror movies, gateway horror movies. You, t- you heard me talk about it with Mick, and we're going to discuss it a little Hang bit. Hang on. Yeah? Hang on, sorry, mate. Dude. When, when's the Mick? When, when are we talking to Mick? <sighs> I knew that would happen. Yeah, but you were gone for too long. You're, ki- you're kidding me. No, nah, he's done it again, mate. No! <laughs> no, I'm sure Mick sends his regards. I've got a cra- I'm, like I'm literally wearing a cravat. Mm-hmm. Like why am I now? I'm just a fat guy in a cravat. <laughs> wow, this is, I'm like the guy Master Chef. This is outrageous. Yes, we must Preston on with the show. You like what I did there? Yeah, all right. That was a yeah. <laughs> anyway, look. Well, one of as I was just saying, one of the things that we talked about whilst you were missing um, was horror flicks for kids, and I talked to Mick about that. So you missed that. You're gonna have to listen to the show to catch up. Um, you know, I only listen to my bits. That's true. Well, whatever. This is one of your bits, so make the most of it, mate. <laughs> what do you What do you make of uh, gateway flicks, horror flicks for kids? Oh, look, I mean, look, I was a, you know, I was scared shitless when I was a kid of everything. So uh, you'd be surprised at the things that, that terrified me. Mm. Uh, but I, like, there were, like, great movies, like, really great kids kind of horror movies that you, some that you watch now and you're like, I can't believe this was considered appropriate. Our era was full of inappropriate slash appropriate kids flicks. Yeah, like you're allowed to get away. They got away with a lot more. Like I know people who work in like children's television now, and and you just like everything has to be C rated, which means it can't have literally. It, it's like it can't have anything in it yeah, that would gotta, offend anyone, that would challenge anyone, that would in any way work to educate anyone. Like how they get away with things like Sesame Street, where they try and teach kids about. You know, I'm sure they they don't anymore. Well, do you remember when Sesame Street used to teach you about death and they used to teach you about all that kind of, you know, deep yeah. issues that affect all lives? Um, well, like, like shows like Degrassi Junior High would cover <laughs> things like birth control and, you know, suicide and drugs and stuff like that. And you're like, you know, that's that's not even being covered on, I mean, I suppose it is being covered on Neighbours and stuff now, but it's certainly not being, <laughs> certainly not being, neighbors. <laughs> yeah. It's the Canadian Neighbours. I think oh, you'll find mate. that uh, Neighbours is the Canadian Degrassi Junior High. But look, I don't, it's, it's I don't, all happened at Erinsborough High. Look, I don't want to sound like a broken record. And I did mention it to Mick. Like the psychological benefits of you know these these safe horror films are just you know invaluable because they teach you resilience and they teach you how to how to cope with you know things that are difficult. And let's go through a few. Like I mean, as a kid. Nothing terrified me more than Michael Jackson's Thriller. I think it was possibly the earlier werewolf scenes more than the zombies. But yeah. once again, the the feeling that I recall of having that adrenaline, that that thrill of being scared, 
that's what I've attached to in my adult life and I'm chasing that feeling. Like even now, I want to feel that innocence and I guess sense of innocence being jeopardized. You know what I mean? Like No, look, I, I remember going to see Twenty Eight Days Later in the cinema. <laughs> okay. And and as as you know, there's that scene where they um they leave London and they they kind of stop on the roadside and there's a like a grocery store kind of thing and uh uh Killian Murphy is like, I'm gonna go in and and uh you know, he's told not to, but he's like oh, get stuffed, I'm going in. Yeah. And during that whole scene, I was looking at the ceiling going why do I do this to myself? I don't like this feeling. Like I was literally like I was, I was nervous. And like, that's how, like I remember dad watching Dr. Who on TV and I would hide behind the couch when I heard that music. Like this is Tom Baker, Dr. Who. And it terrified, like the whole thing terrified me, but I couldn't stop watching it. Like I'd always be like, I'd be behind the couch, but my head would be around the corner watching it. Um, You work for monster pictures. Yeah. Well, you know, you fall. Sometimes you just fall into things. <laughs> well, let's go through some favourites. The classic ones, obviously, you had your Ghostbusters and your Gremlins and your Critters. Uh, Return to Oz, I know that's one that you think is terrifying, as do I. Return to Oz, uh, like I watched this again uh, in preparation for this and like I, I completely forgot that the movie starts with Arnie M taking Dorothy to a mental institution to get electroshock therapy. <laughs> How terrified are those scenes where they're wheeling her down the corridor on the bed? Yeah. I mean, and it's Jean Marsh. Like, that woman is terrifying. Like, she's the villain in just about every movie she's in, including things like Willow. And even, like, Danny the Champion of the World, which doesn't really – it's got a villain. It's a guy, but he's not really a scary villain. He's just, a, like, a pompous kind of ass. Yeah. But then she turns up in that, and she's the – the head of the education board or whatever he's checking that making, you know, doesn't, you know, that's going to take Danny away from his dad. And she's like, this woman is just terrifying. And she, and then she pops up again in a hall full of seven heads that all kind of look at you and talk to you and stuff. Like that movie is, it's terrifying. You know what? I'm a massive fan of uh, all of the bum Oz books and they are darker than that film. Oh, wow. So, like, I, I may have said this to you on one of the shows. I would love to see them adapt The Wizard of Oz properly, book by book. Like, maybe, legit. Maybe an HBO kind of thing where they're done faithfully because they are so dark. I mean, the Tin Woodsman, for example, like, the reason he is Tin, he was a real woodsman who had a enchanted axe curse put on him and hacked his own limbs off. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, yeah, right. Like, it, it's dark. Well, you know, look, it's good to see, though, in today's world that, that we are starting to get some of these films back. So, like, recently we've had the Goosebumps movie. We had uh, The House with the Clock in Its Walls, Coraline, Paranorman, and more importantly, um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I thought that was a real good return to that kind of film that we grew up on. Yeah, totally. But for me, I think the most the penultimate PG horror film for me has to be Arachnophobia. I don't think there is a scarier film, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I refused to watch that movie until I was in my twenties. I was like, I was having none of it because I, I hate spiders. I've always hated spiders. It's still and scary. The, it's still like it's. Um, it was still terrifying. You know, I wrote a I wrote a script for uh, Arachnophobia two when I was a teenager. I need to oh, dust really? it off. Yeah, I did. You know, <laughs> you know th- there's that scene like the guy uh, Julian Sands' character, the doctor in the city, like the the scientist guy in the city. Yeah. Um, the bug expert or whatever you want to call him. The spider in his terrarium that he got from the Amazon survived. Like, we never heard what happened to that one. What happened to it? Right. 
Right. No, so arachnophobia in the big city, mate. Yeah, that'd be that'd be awesome. Anyway, if we're not careful, I guess this episode is going to run away and get out of control because I think our time is getting close to being up. So we better get on to making some recommendations for people. Okay. Okay. Uh, I know, man, dude. Like it's going to be a long show, eh? Yeah. <laughs> we didn't even talk. We didn't even get to talk about the Dark Crystal. Well, why don't you talk about it now, real quick? Well, I mean, I think that was the kind of penultimate um, puppetoon or you know um, Henson animation. Uh, kind of kids horror film like mm. the Skeksis the Skeksis were terrifying yep they were like you know and all of the like the spider creatures that were their servants and mm-hmm. like all that kind of stuff and even the I can't remember her name the old the old woman with the plucked the eye out of her yes. her out her head and looked around at people and stuff like it was you know pretty scary but then I remember thinking things like the Muppets musicians of Bremen was pretty <laughs> Pretty scary because, like, the had the the donkey belonged to the drunk woodsman who kept wanting to hack at it with his axe and yep. stuff, and they had the monsters and stuff. Like, I always thought all that what stuff about was pretty scary. The storyteller that was pretty scary. The storyteller was, I mean, the storyteller was awesome. It was like, awesome. I, I love that. I love that show. And yeah, you're totally right. Like, there's you know, there's that <laughs> the whole which are, the whole one where the guy um has is dared to sleep in the haunted castle. The fear me not because he doesn't. He doesn't understand fear. Yeah. And then, you know, he gets the guy's head and plays bowling with it and <laughs> and stuff. Like it's you know, cool. and the the luck child where mm-hmm. um he falls into the he falls into the cave of the female robber barons and the robbers and uh, gets poisoned by the little troll like man who lives there and oh, then mate, you know, dude. all that kind of stuff. There's so much of this stuff we could talk about. And look, I would say maybe we can do a whole episode dedicated to it, but you know, since we've began this podcast somewhat twenty six episodes ago. We've kind of just woven kids' horror films throughout episodes you know, and talked about them. And look, I don't even—we haven't even really got to the British stuff. I mean, a bit with storyteller, but you know, stuff like Watcher in the Woods and mm-hmm. uh, the Wolves of Willoughby Chase, and you know that kind of stuff—that well, that real kind of gothic horror. You say that, but Mick and I talked all about it. Son of a bitch! Right, you so... and you and your pal Mick, <laughs> I hope you had a good chat. All right, so motherfucker, let's recommend some movies. All right. Do you, want, <laughs> do you want me to go first uh, this time? Yeah, why not? All right. This week I'm going to talk about uh, a favorite horror film of mine uh, that Arrow have put out not not too long ago. I mean, maybe a while ago. Um, called Blood Rage. Yeah. Have you ever seen this? Have you ever seen this film, Glenn? I have not. It's it's a phenomenal film. It stars Louise Lasser from um, Mary Hartman. Mary Hartman, which if you've never seen that show. Jump on YouTube and check it out or buy the box set. It is bizarre and awesome. But um, Louise Lasser uh, plays this mum and she's got – she's a single mother. She's got two twin boys and the film opens with her taking them to the drive-in to watch a movie and basically with, with her new boyfriend. And her boyfriend basically shoes the kids out of the car so that he can have his his lascivious way with uh, Louise Lasser. <laughs> and one of the kids comes back and finds her mother being dry humped by this guy and and basically kills him, like stabs him with a with a knife. Good lord. And then um um basically uh, goes ends up in a mental hospital for for the next 20 years for the for this killing. And then um he escapes. Mhm. And he comes back, he tries to come back to his family. And then by this time, Louise Lasser runs a, like a motel inn, like a motel hotel type place. 
and uh, and it's, it's her son's. It's the other son's birthday, and he's got all his friends around, and they're having like a typical kind of eighties horror, like lots of nudity and lots of you know hijinks in pools and all that kind of stuff. And it turns into this incredibly kind of gory slasher, and it is awesome. Cool. I'm going to add that to my list, and it's definitely worth seeing. Seeing as this week's episode is heavily themed around horror, I'm going to throw back to one of my favourite movies ever screened at Monster Fest. Uh, this one's from Ooh. 2013. It's the creature feature, Big Ass Spider. Oh, Mike Bendis. Uh, yeah, I adore this film. I think it's just a fantastic take on the classic B-movie genre. Stylish, it's kooky, it's violent, and it's just hilarious. I think every single gag in this movie and every fright just hits the mark. And Greg Grunberg, I think that's how you pronounce his name, yeah, he doing doing what he does best, which is like fat Keanu Reeves. I, I just, <laughs> I, I love him. Well, that guy's entire career is based on the fact that he's childhood friends with J.J. Abrams. Yeah, exactly. And so it's actually good to see him in a film that has nothing to do with J.J. Abrams. Yeah, and it does. It also stars Claire Kramer, who at the time she was in things like Buffy and stuff, which I never really gave a shit about. But she was in one of my all-time favorite films, Bring It On. And I remember watching it going, <laughs> "Wow, it's Claire Kramer from Bring It On. This is a I'm going to watch this. This is amazing." Well, if anybody has the hots for Claire Kramer, of course they should check out Albert Pune's Road to Hell because she gets her gear off in that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, give me a second. Uh, I'm just looking that up. I've seen that on the internet. Uh, Do the Google. Uh, Claire Kramer, Road to Hell. Uh, Claire Kramer, nude. Uh, that will do. <laughs> thank uh, you, Google Gods. Anyway, um, it's fairly easy to come by. Look, I will cheekily say yeah, that. Yeah, we've it's, got it on. Uh, it's available on DVD and Blu ray on the Monster <laughs> Pictures uh, website. You can order it directly from there. Correct. And I, I, won't, I won't say what else I was going to say. <laughs> you can, Monster you Pictures website, it. everybody. Monster Pictures website. It's dirt cheap too. Yeah, buy it from there. You can get it from. Uh, I'm sure you can. I'm sure they still have a few copies in JB Hi-Fi mm, floating do. around for sure. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's on numerous streaming services, <clears throat> probably Amazon Prime and whatnot. I saw a big ass spider. Ain't, ain't nobody gonna believe this. Shit. I seen a spider was coming at me. Man, it had multiple like what eight. Six legs. Yeah, no. And well, now we're at the end of the show, and what a fully loaded episode it was. Uh, I guess our sincere gratitude to Mick Garris for making the time for us. Um, we've been unabashed fans of his for over 20 years, and to have him on the show has been a massive highlight for us, particularly for me. I've wanted him on the show for a long time, so thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yak it up, Chuckles. Just keep talking <laughs> about you and your good friend, Mick. Well, do look him up. Uh, there's so much good stuff to tap into, from documentaries to feature films, miniseries, a bunch of novels, and don't forget his superior podcast, Postmortem. Um, but we're not done yet. If you haven't liked or subscribed to our Facebook or YouTube pages, then now is the time because Mick will be joining me for a very special round of Rapid Fire on Tuesday night. And you don't want to miss that one. Of course, a big thanks to Jarrett, Guillermo, and Adam for their regular weekly input. And then there's you, Ben. Um, you were great while you were here, mate. Get fucked. <laughs> to end the show, we're going to dive into Mick's youth. And we're going to play a song from his band, Horse Feather. He brought it up. So here it is. It's called Big Top Rock. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe. Take care. And we'll see you next week on Good Movie Monday.
myself missing pussy whenever the lions expel. <laughs> Clovis. Yeah, that's a good boy. Oh, Clovis. 